Tubals in a China Shop is brought to you by these great companies that are giving us money to let you listen to their stuff. Bullshit, Kyle. We make this show. We make this show. You and me. Tubals in a China Shop is brought to you by us. <laughs> Someone's got to pay the bills, Dan, because it's not our trading. <laughs> <laughs> All right, roll them. You are listening to an entertainment program put together by a company called Financial Ineptitude. Anything said on this show is not an endorsement or professional advice. Would you really want to tell a court of law you were suing us because you thought taking financial advice from two idiots on a podcast put out by Financial Ineptitude was a good idea? Really? Clown hats on your face. Well, hello and welcome, everyone. You've made it to the China Shop. We're super, super, super excited today to have you all in here. I'm Shopkeeper Dan. With me, as always, is Kyle, creator of FinancialNeptitude.com. How are you doing today, Kyle? I'm doing good. Woke up from a nice nap. Raring to go and learn all about Asian markets today. Yes, because we are joined by none other than Harold Vanderlind, the flying Dutchman of Asia, HSBC's chief Asia equity strategist. How are you doing today, Harold? Yeah, good morning. Yes, uh, I'm doing very well. Also, just woke up from a little bit of a longer nap early in the morning. Oh, nice. Naps are amazing, aren't they? Yeah. I've always been a fan, but uh, I'm starting oh, yeah, to really rely yeah. on them heavily lately. <laughs> Now, Harold, you were kind enough to send us a copy of your book, um, Asia's Markets from the Ground Up. Yes. What kind of gave you the idea to start that? Like, why was that something that you wanted to try to tackle? Because there's a lot of information in there. There's a lot of information in there. But what I try to do is to write it in such a way that it's not technical. And this is why it, how it started off. I, I got people on a regular basis asking me, hey, I got some money or I sold a flat and I have some money or I got inheritance. Actually, it was the case once with a friend of mine. Mm-hmm. And how do I invest that? I would like to invest some of that in stocks or Asian stocks. How do I do that? And um, so, you, you, yeah, you talk to people and say, well, well, how long do you want to invest? What is the purpose of it? And you start to talk a bit about it and then you tell them maybe you do this and this and you keep it very simple. So there's a, a a good demand from it, and it was from from friends of mine. Mm-hmm. But what we've seen over the last couple of years is that uh, it's not just a few of my friends that have put money into stock markets, but across Asia, enormous amounts of people actually have started to do that. Um, we've seen a massive rise in, in retail investors in, in Asia, mm-hmm. um, from Korea to Indonesia, from China to, to India. And there, there's just a very strong demand for that. And th- those people have not necessarily, they don't work for a bank, haven't studied finance or something like that. It's, they just want to get this in a very easy, digestible way. So I decided to write a book about it. That's how it came along. That was one of the things that I was really interested in seeing when looking through some of the different chapters was how much of an impact the retail market has now in the Asian markets. I was really actually kind of surprised to see that. Yeah, that, that's really a big new thing. Uh, we actually wrote about this 10 years ago. We called it Asia by Asia, because if you look at the demographics and you look at the wealth, mm-hmm. you could see that this was coming to a certain extent. You just don't know when it happens. It turns out five years, it started to become big, but actually during COVID, it became even bigger. And now we have in, in markets from Korea, to to Indonesia, we have retail investors, yeah, accounting for about 50, 60, sometimes even up to 70% of all the trades in in markets. So larger institutional funds that have typically dominated Asian markets, yeah, they are now uh, actually a smaller player in these markets, funnily enough. Were you counting the like main pension funds as part of the retail crowd or is that separate? No, no, this is literally um, people like, uh, say, the two of you guys who uh, who sit there and say, listen, oh, I just got a 
thousand dollars or so, let's put it into Asian stocks and you, you invest in it. So it's literally PP on themselves. So why do they do that? We don't have good pension system in large parts of Asia. And if the pension mm-hmm. systems are there, they're insufficient or they're rather new. So for a lot of people who are a little bit older, it's, it's just not going to do it by the time you are going to retire because half of your working life, you haven't had a pension. So an age is aging. So these people getting to a, a stage in life, everybody say, listen, retirement is going to come up. Uh, what do I do? So you buy property, you buy assets in order to, uh, to yeah, to make yourself ready for retirement. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and buying stocks has become easy. And actually what we've seen is that the disproportionate number of younger people in particular have have really gone into the uh, into the stock market. And that was before the rise of COVID? That was right before the rise of COVID, but the only markets where we have statistics on age uh, turns out to be Indonesia. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was during the rise of COVID. But uh, it seems that in other markets, this is also the case, but that, that already started before COVID. COVID just worked as an accelerator. It definitely uh, jump-started things here. I just wonder what makes Asia so much different. That is it the lack of big institutions in some of these developing economies, or is it more of an interest in the retail crowd? Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of things that makes Asia really different. One is what we just spoke about, that you have more retail investors than probably, uh, I don't know the statistics in Europe, but then in uh, than some of the other markets. I think the second thing that makes Asia different is, is just the diversity of the place. And mm-hmm. I'm not just talking about the individual uh, markets, that's already very diverse, but in the markets, there is more diversity as well. And, and, and stocks can, can move in all sorts of different directions. So yeah, being, if you invest in here seriously, if you're, if you are a pension or a mutual fund or something like that, there's much more scope for you to be very stock specific or thematic specific or yeah, look at particular ideas than, than for example, in the US or Europe, because there's many more different stocks listed in these markets. Now, the person that you're, that the book is kind of targeting, the person who wants to look for, you know, emerging markets, I'm assuming, for finding, you know, those little diamonds that mm-hmm. can turn into like big, big companies in an emerging market. Like how do, how would that person invest in some of these markets? That, it depends a bit on, on how much you want to be on top of these markets. So if, if you're a guy that really loves your tech and you like to look at individual companies and you know a little about individual kind of tech developments, listen, what you do is you go focus in particular on Korea, Taiwan, maybe parts of Japan, and then you go ver- drill it really uh, down. Mm-hmm go for individual stocks. If you just say, I don't know, but you know, I know Asia a bit, but I'm not going to be so active in that sense. But you can buy just an ETF and you just buy the whole region or you buy an individual market. And some markets have phenomenal track records. India, for example, uh, Indonesia actually uh, as well. China, so-so depends a bit of what what market in China you're looking at. Uh, Because in China, we have uh, more than one stock market. Mm -hmm. And um, so it depends a bit of what you want to do. And uh, there are also baskets and products you can buy, which are kind of thematic demographics, for example, Asia's aging. You can buy baskets of stocks around that, and that's a, that's a very good way of investing in the region as well. You mentioned the uh, the aging aging thing uh, mm. a couple of times. That was one of the things I was actually kind of shocked to see, and I think we had a little bit of a discussion about it before uh, this interview while we were kind of discussing what topics to look at. Mm. Was the the fact that China like may actually be was loosening the restrictions they had on on births and households to try to combat that problem. I was completely unaware uh, that there was an aging crisis going on in a place like even China. Yeah, well, there is an aging crisis, but I'm not quite sure if we could call it a crisis in a sense. Uh, I'd say looming then maybe is the word, right? Yeah, it's a bit like the weather. I mean, you can can complain about the weather. You can say it's really bad if it rains and... Mm -hmm. 
but it's not going to change the situation. Depends a bit if you got a if you got an umbrella with you or not, right? How well are you prepared? <laughs> How well right. are you prepared for the situation? That's the story, and so it is a bit with demographics. So we are aging. Yes, we can say that's all really bad, but it depends. Can we deal with it? Can we adjust society in such a way that we actually going to make a benefit out of it? And and and, and particularly Japan, of course, is at the forefront of this and uh, mm-hmm. it's doing things that that seem to work uh, reasonably well in certain places. Korea and Taiwan are following quite soon, but China is is getting there. So the average Chinese is just below 40 years old, but you've got a, a large swath of the population that is now in 40s and 50s. Right. And uh, yeah, you go fast forward 20 years, they will be uh, older age people, in, maybe in retirement. So there's a couple of different trends developing. First is a rise of what is called the Chinese empty nest, because if you're in your 40s and 50s and you had a child in your 20s, well, that child is going to be close to 20 as well. And typically that's the age when children leave home. Mm-hmm. Hopefully. Uh, hopefully, <laughs> exactly. And hopefully become financially independent. Yes. <laughs> Uh, these households becoming smaller, so they go from three to two because you get a one-child policy, right? Mm-hmm. So you, uh, you go from three to two, but the mother and the father, so to say, very often the mother works as well. So that household is actually in quite a good kind of financial situation. It can actually buy better products and, and these sort of things, more so than in, in other parts of Asia. I'm thinking about India, for example, mm. uh, because their households are bigger. So even with the same income, they have yeah, the same money to share with fewer heads in, in a family, only two. And you see that in China, you see that therefore it's those kind of people in their 40s, 50s that buy less product, but better products or home improvement products, or they are the ones that travel and, or they want to do that middle-aged man in Lycra thing, right? You want to stay fit mm-hmm. and they buy, they buy sportswear and, and these sort of things. And it's exactly those industries that are actually for the moment doing, um, doing really good. So you see, for example, companies that sell uh, local liquor. Hmm. Uh, uh, there's kind of a rice wine motai, and it's a company that is doing really well. And you can see that the margins improve because they can sell higher margin, better quality product to these people as well. And um, yeah, and so that means that parts of the Chinese sectors see margin improvement coming through, uh, and have performed very well for the last couple of years. These stocks and probably can continue to do so over the next uh, maybe decade or so because yeah, these are trends that are really visible and uh, slowly unfold over a longer period of time. That was one of the things I was really impressed with with the book was how well it kind of just described the background. Like it gave like a nice cultural overview of the the country before diving into the markets, kind of talking about like what things that the society values, like with Japan about robotics and being like the cutting edge of that yeah. industry. Um, I was actually kind of surprised. Like, how do you get a job that allows you to travel to all these different places? Yeah, fantastic. Right? Yes. No, I mean, uh, I really enjoy my job. I mean, travel has, of course, in the last couple of years been very um, uh, limited because of COVID and quarantine restrictions in all places, including here in Hong Kong. But yeah, typically, I mean, you, uh, you would travel a lot around the region, which is why the Flying Dutchman, uh, that, that nickname uh, came from it, because you go to conferences or you see companies there. And this, this, this is, I think, is important, in particular in Asia, because of the diversity of the stocks that are listed here. You can't just take a, a macroeconomic approach and say, oh, you know, GDP is going to be this and there's going to be interest rates. You need to know that. Mm-hmm. But what you also need to do is to go actually to these places and go to Korea, go to Indonesia, go to India, and and actually go see the companies that are listed there and try to understand what goes on. And demographics is a good way to kick off and understand some of these countries. Economics, of course, what happens there broader as well. And then you meet these companies and figure out how this all fits together. And 
With that, you get a a framework, which is why the book is called From the Ground Up. You you try to actually go to these places, have your two feet on the ground in in China, India, Indonesia, meet these companies, and from there on see what do these companies do, what is the prospects, and what does that tell me about these stock markets in these places? Yeah. Uh, One of the ones that you kind of mentioned uh, this is one of the snippets I really liked here. Uh, talking about Java mm. and the uh, just the difference that a little investment in infrastructure kind of made, um, like the push for better roads, and then mentioning that the same thing's happening in Malaysia, Thailand, Vietnam, and the Philippines. Mm. My question is uh, that the emerging or the improving of infrastructure, the focus on that, does that lead to better market returns? Because I would assume that a company should be able to start slashing its shipping costs if it suddenly can a you know, have an easier time getting products out to ports and B, being able to put themselves in locations to where they don't have to be right in the middle of a population center. Yeah, it actually works two ways. So in one hand, um, uh, Java is a nice example, as you say, but um, um, you could say large parts of ASEAN is is a bit of the same story and maybe India as well. Mm -hmm. Um, In the 1990s, it was just difficult to get around. If you, uh, I, I lived in Jakarta, in the 1990s, uh, if I would go to a place that well, sometimes I visited some family, uh, it would took me five, six hours to get there. Oof. Now, you can actually get there in about three hours. Why? Because in the 1990s, it was a single, uh, double lane, but a single small road. And if there was a truck on it that was slow, then you got stuck behind it and that was it. <laughs> uh, now, there's simply a highway. So, it's actually, you go on a highway, it's a six lane highway, either way, boom. So it's easy to get the first, say, 250 kilometers done or something like that. And uh, this is important because it means that in the 90s, companies were concentrated around Jakarta because that's where the infrastructure was. Right. You could make something and there was a port and you needed to get it to port in time. Now you can actually go to central Java and companies are doing that, setting up facilities there. That means that you actually, it's easier to, to, to get your products around Java or parts of Indonesia because the infrastructure is improved. And that means you can set up factories there. That means employment is there. That means that consumer markets are developing there as well. On the other hand, what you get is that in the 90s, actually only Indonesian companies could really do this. But now we have Chinese companies, we got Thai companies, we got companies from actually from Indonesia or Malaysia, Singapore, also going in there. So your competition goes up. Right. That, that's sometimes bad in certain industries, in cement industry. We've seen this in, uh, in Indonesia in particular. And what we've seen is, of course, that the internet's emerged and turns out Indonesians are very large producers of social media. I mean, for Facebook, Twitter, and these markets, Indonesia is the largest or one of the largest markets that they cover. Mm-hmm. And now, yeah, having that, you can actually distribute your products through uh, social media, of course, as well. And that, so that's a really big thing in these markets. So, yeah, you've got to invest in the companies that benefit from it. And don't have that drawdown of, of competition, right? So issues with competition. I'm curious to know, like, what is the like the overall impact on on a focus on infrastructure? Like, once you start building out those roads, like, does that something that you see kind of immediately, or is it something that takes three, four years to to really start to realize the benefits? No, what what you get sometimes we've had this over the last um, twenty years uh, repeatedly is that if governments say, hey, we have uh, money ready, we're going to do a massive push for infrastructure, and Asia's got an infrastructure deficit, so we we it needs better infrastructure mm-hmm. in large parts of Asia. Maybe China is a little bit less so than, say, India or Indonesia. And markets get excited. And people then very often say, oh, I've got to buy the construction companies. What, what the lessons, actually, of history has been, don't buy the construction companies. They're not really making that much more money out of it. It's a highly competitive business. Mm. But buy the property companies or the consumer companies that benefit from it. So right. it is... 
it, let's say factories are being set up in central Java. It's actually the local shopping mall or the local property company that does because these people get jobs in central Java. Right. And what do they do? They buy different stuff because they have more money to spend. And very often they want to buy a new car or a new house and these sort of things. So it's the property companies or the consumer companies that really benefit from it. And that's how you play that. And that's also why it's important to have an idea of like the things that that society values too, because that's going to be with where the money gets focused, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a really good thing. Actually, now we're talking about Indonesia. I mean, this is a to a large extent a Muslim country. So, and and people therefore, as they've made money, one of the things that was important to them was actually travel, mm-hmm. because they wanted to go and go to Mecca and do a Hajj. Right. Yeah? And uh, so we've seen a massive increase. No, it was a bit more difficult to invest in, but airliners, of course, benefit from that and travel agents and, and these sort of companies. Hmm. And then uh, when they've done that, then then these people say, now I'm going to spend uh, money on something else. But for them, that, uh, for many of them at least, that's a, a high priority uh, expense that as soon as they have some money, that's what they want to do. You mentioned Indonesia being big in the social media. I think you, I think in the book it said at one point there was 6% of the entire Facebook uh demographic was Indonesian. That's right. Yeah. And the other thing I was surprised to see too is it looks like a night it was a night uh around the Asian financial crisis. I think they they actually managed to change the government. Yeah, that that's right. Now first on on this uh Facebook thing. Indonesia is one of these markets that uh, people don't always quickly look at but it is big. I mean, by the end of this decade, the biggest consumer markets in the world will be China, India, the US, and then Indonesia. Mm-hmm. It will be bigger than Brazil. It will be bigger than the UK. It will be bigger than Germany. It's a big market. It's already almost up there, but um, uh, but it gets sometimes ignored in that sense. People right. don't know that. Uh, yeah, what we've seen in 97, 98 is um, it, it ran into some real serious financial uh, problems. Currency went haywire. Companies went bankrupt. Local economy collapsed. And we had an autocratic uh, government in India under the President Suharto in those days. And he'd been in power for 30 years and unquestioned. Uh, I mean, his, his power was just, uh, was not going to give away here. It was unquestioned. Mm-hmm. And in a short period of a, probably about a few weeks, it quickly unraveled because food prices went up, people lost their jobs, students went to the streets, uh, people went and followed the students to the streets as well, normal people. And he got completely out of hand, and he had to step down eventually, which he did, and pass on power. People were just frustrated by it. And it, it turned this autocratic kind of country into um, a young, vibrant democracy. Uh, very interesting. It's it's, it's young, vibrant democracy, lots of political parties. Every uh, five years, there's, uh, there's, there's elections. A new president can be elected. So, so it's, um, it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's become really a... a a young, vibrant nation in that sense, a democracy. And what we've seen, in uh, the, it's not always relevant for stock markets, but that development, it, it, I mean, that market has basically recovered after that. This is one of the reasons why innovation done so well over the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. And you, the banking sectors have completely uh, cleaned up. So the banks are really solid banks, actually, in Indonesia now, really interesting companies to invest in, highly profitable, that the consumer companies we've spoken about. And what we now see is that local kind of tech companies are emerging as well. So uh, they, they're starting to list on the stock exchanges. Supposedly, a few of them in the media has been rumored will list uh, this uh, this calendar year, 2022. So we'll see if that happens or not. I don't know. So that market is changing and is becoming um, yeah reasonable, sizable. Not as big as China or Korea, but um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting market to look at. There's a lot of new development. Indonesia is definitely a lot bigger than I think anybody ever really thinks about it. 
I remember looking at population statistics uh, as probably 10 years ago and being shocked at how many people were actually living in, in that country. Yeah, I mean, it's about 15 million people that live there, maybe a little bit more now these days. Um, it's, it's the fourth most populous country on the planet. It's just that we don't see it as much right? if you're outside of Indonesia. But it's, it's one of these sleeping giants, I would say. I noticed uh, when I was looking through, there seemed to be a common theme uh, of company or different markets kind of getting roiled by this whole financial crisis. And it, mm. the common theme that I seen that I think I was picking up on was that everyone just seemed to be just growing way too fast. Yeah. Uh, is that just something that's common to a new and emerging market? Is that something that a new market has to kind of go through, like learn not to take bad debt <laughs> and try to get their hands in everything? Or yeah, it seems to be. Maybe uh, I don't know if this is uh, the correct analogy, but teenagers very often want to try smoking until they later on decide oh, this is not something for me but they all try uh, you got to maybe go through this maybe that is the case with countries to a certain extent as well but what we've seen is that a lot of these countries uh, grew uh, they took too much debt too much of it was used dollar debt too much of it was short-term debt debt in ASEAN then blew literally up they couldn't repay their debt went bankrupt with all kinds of political consequences and there wasn't just Indonesia it was in Thailand as well Korea had massive problems they had to clean that up but this is this has also got lessons, for example, for China, because China's got very high debt levels at the moment as well and needs to deal with that. Mm. Uh, what it hopes it can do is to gre- create sufficient amount of economic growth that it can outgrow uh, its debt levels uh, and also keeping those debt levels hopefully under control. But so far, yeah, that's that's something uh, that we're not, we're not quite sure how that's going to play out over the next couple of years in China. But uh, yeah, a lot of them had, uh, this This was because you didn't have domestic savings pools that were big enough. We, we started off, we we're talking about domestic retail investors, but there wasn't a locally uh, sufficient amount of savings in, in these ASEAN currencies in the 90s mm-hmm. to say, we have a locally enough money to invest, for example, in infrastructure. So you needed to source that capital to that money from from outside and very often that was you short term use dollar debt and that that went horribly wrong but yeah maybe that's that's something that asia just had to go through but not all markets have gone through that taiwan a little bit less than korea and uh, and india uh, uh, much less so than than asia mm-hmm. uh, and china uh, still has large amounts of debt so uh, it's it's something that they still need to figure out how to deal with that uh, yeah one of the it looked like one of the issues was just trying to buy you know, the, there's no comprehension i guess of synergy <laughs> of trying to like you know expand your company into things that make sense like vertical integration or or even horizontal strategies the, but as I remember Daewoo, like Daewoo made cars, right? In Korea? Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, there's all kinds of funny examples of companies that d- don't exist anymore for exactly that reason. But I think there was a lollipop company in Korea that uh, that wanted to go into high-end technology and semiconductors. That was really good. But there's, there's, <laughs> wow. There's <no> wow. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't really work out very well. Um, we've seen this with other, I've seen this with companies that that make um, consumer products and wanted to go into golf cor- uh, courts and, and, and these courts sort of things. Money in in the, in the mid nineties in particular, money was just easy, and you had these people just yeah lapping it up and saying, "Listen, oh, we we could we could build out uh, this business, we can build out that business." And they issued a bond or some equity. People put their money into it, and there you go. And they went, of course, in certain cases, <laughs> horrendously wrong, right? Yes. Yeah, let's talk about Dad a little bit about Daewoo. My dad just gave me a pistol that he's had for forever, and I'm pretty sure it was a Daewoo pistol. <laughs> Dan was talking about, remember, Daewoo TVs? Yeah. <laughs> what is a car company making a gun for? 
It was a pretty good gun too, which was kind of surprising. Yeah, this is really uh, this has gone really uh, in, in in Japan in in and in, in, in uh, Korea. What we've seen, particularly in Japan after the Second World War, that the model that emerged was whereby you had a, a group of companies that all somehow worked together. Very often had their own bank to finance it. Mm-hmm. The Indonesians did that a little bit in a certain sense as well. You had some conglomerates there, and the Koreans at the tables. They did something. Uh, they did something the same, and to protect themselves, they had all sorts of cross so you had a variety of companies that, that made anything for my part from 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 well you said just the cars and pistols and to semiconductors and whatever property mm-hmm. construction then they had their own bank and then they took cross ownership in themselves so that they could protect themselves against the evil outside world and yeah so you get this creation of these kind of tightly knit corporate structures that are even today still in place uh, i mean some and, and other Japanese companies, they're all parts of larger conglomerates that have uh, multiple cross-holdings. And particularly in Korea, and, or in Japan actually as well, there's a regular debate about sh- should, yeah, what should politicians do to try to uh, unwind these cross-holdings because they're inefficient, lead to inefficient use of capital uh, and sort of things. It's one of the reasons why Korea always trades at a discount to the rest of the region. These issues are still around. Yeah, does that, I mean, because you got to think that the kind of limits that we used to... I think we had a saying, uh, a friend of mine, whenever we talked about the different steel companies that we work for, if they never would want to go outside of the company for hiring, uh, you know, a new management, uh, we called that incestuous because you're consistently promoting the same ideas from within the company. If you're never bringing in fresh blood, you're not getting fresh new ideas, and then it kind of stagnates you. Yeah, so it, it, it has advantages because if things go bad, there's already, and you're part of a group, you can help each other out. But the disadvantages are exactly what you just mentioned here. It, 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 it leads to some sort of corporate inbreeding, if you want to call it like that. Mm-hmm. And you don't get fresh blood and fresh ideas in, and it becomes stagnant. Uh, management is also protected from the rest of the market. So they can do pretty much what they want to do. And if the market says, we don't like it, and say, well, okay, but there's nothing you can do. You can't take us off. <laughs> right. <laughs> so so you, the market can't impose a certain discipline on, on them either. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is changing. Eh? I mean, there are groups that have opened up, and of course, there are lots of companies in, in Japan and Korea that are not part of uh, these large groups. But um, this has been a particular feature in uh, in, in yeah, Japan and uh, in Korea over the last few decades, actually. And that feature is uh, is still around. Samsung, LG, some of these larger groups uh, that, that we all know very well are very much uh, large yeah, conglomerates. How is Japan's... Uh, um push to try to uh, unwind that uh, how is that going for them uh look like abe started a project uh, back in 2012 to try to unwind that whole structure thing yeah they, they this has been a, a a topic of discussion in japan for for decades almost i would say now and different politicians have have, have tried a lot of things mm-hmm they called in these companies and say, you got to change this, but nothing happened. Uh, they put in rules and regulations to make it easier to unwind things. Uh, nothing really changed. What is changing a little bit, and the jury is still out here uh, in how far this has changed Japan. Uh, I got people saying this is really going to be a big change. Other people telling me, no, no, this is not going to really make any dent in, in corporate Japan. But what has changed is that they've set up an index of most profitable uh, companies and this index has become uh, kind of a uh, return on equity index if you want to be technical about it the shame index it has become the shame index because yes. <laughs> if you're, if you're part of it that's good but if you at the end of so once a year they change the constituents of that index the group of companies that that make part of that index and if you're out of it then the, yeah that's that's it, it gets highlighted on the front uh, newspaper so 
it gives an incentive. It seems that at least it gives an incentive for companies to try to be on that particular list and uh, and be included and stay in it and not get shamed publicly. And that seems to work to a certain extent. So Corbett Japan has started to focus a little bit on that. So maybe that's the way to go for it. Well, for especially for a place like Japan that you know has a, a deep, history with pride where shame means something yes exactly (laughs) you shame an american who's making millions of dollars he's not going to (laughs) care whatever i'll go back to my beach house and (laughs) sip martinis (laughs) no but that's uh yeah you're right i mean there are cultural differences on how people look at these things and uh but it's interesting that it that seems to uh seems to have a bit of an impact on, uh, on japan but i think we're very very early days yeah japan i I was actually kind of surprised to see because japan is the one i think of that's like the model for success in asian markets like you know going from what they were back in you know the early 1900s to post-world war ii Mm. like the the changes and the basically reshaping of their whole uh, country (laughs) in such a short period of time but i was surprised to see that they've been kind of stagnating since the 80s i think they still haven't ever reached the peaks of like 89 no, that's right. This is something that happens in Asia once in a while. Asia is a big place. Uh, lots of people living here, people getting richer. And sometimes in the stock markets, we get overly excited by a particular product or a market or uh, an industry that that can that can do extremely well. If you could sell uh, your particular product to 4 billion people here and you think about the profits you could make, right. you get extremely excited. And what we've seen is in, in Asia, maybe also the thinness of the market, sometimes these markets had only a few stocks uh, in, in the past, led to what we can call big market stories. So you have that markets get completely run away with a particular story for some time mm-hmm. and have um, irrational expectations of future growth. But yeah, these high expectations can continue for a long time. Now, we've had Japan in 1989 to 20 years for them to deflate that particular market. But there are more of these stories. You had China steel stocks in in 2005 that were flying high. Uh, You had Chinese telephone companies in 2007 that tripled, doubled in 2006 and then tripled in 2007. Mm. Um, We've had consumer stocks in China, but also quite recently Macau gaming names, 2014. Quite recently, China Internet in 2019-20. That just did enormously well because, yeah, this is massive markets, few companies. What we then find over time is actually it's not the few companies who do this because other companies come in. Right. Competition uh, comes, uh, margins get eroded, regulations come in, and all sorts of other things happen. And then it takes sometimes a considerable amount of time for those stories to unwind and come back to uh, to reality. Now, Japan was this in 1989, but I mentioned some of the other ones that um, kind of more sectoral stories that took a little bit not 20 years, but maybe one, two, or three years sometimes uh, to deflate uh, before the expectations were back on uh, yeah, back on the ground, if you want to put it like that. Over in, I think you mentioned the, the different video game companies in um, Japan doing really well lately. Uh, Konami, Konami is one that I think a lot of us uh, are, have a special place in our heart from Contra back in the early 90s. Oh, yeah. yeah. American kids. Does the Konami code work in the Konami headquarters? If you went over there and did up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, BA, start, would anything special happen? <laughs> <laughs> no, but this, this is, uh, this is in a sense, quite nice, right? I mean, uh, the two stories, uh, stock stories uh, that have worked really well in in, uh, in in Asia over the last 20 years are either companies that came from nowhere but became global uh, leaders in a particular industry. So there could have been computer games, right? but it could also be all kinds of other products uh, uh, made in Japan, Korea, India, wherever. Mm-hmm. So it's 
is the new global emergers, you know, if you want to put it like that, that, that have done very well. Or it's actually the domestic companies, companies that are domestic kind of, um, yeah, strong brands in India and China, maybe Indonesia as well, that, um, that, that have done very well. It's these two sort of stocks that have done very well in Asia over the last 20 years. We kind of talked a little bit about some of the different markets. Uh, I do want to jump back over to, to places like China and Vietnam, because uh, both of those countries are actually communist. Yeah. But uh, when you think of a stock market, you think of capitalism. So I've always struggled with how do you marry those two ideas together to create a free stock exchange in a communist country? So the, the stock exchange, say China, but you can take Vietnam as well. Mm -hmm. The stock exchange in itself is just a market thing, right? I mean, it's, it's the way people can buy, sell stocks. No, nothing wrong with that. It, it operates freely in, in China, freely. I'll get back to that. But uh, you can buy and sell stock fairly easily in, uh, for example, in Hong Kong. You can buy Chinese companies uh, here. Uh, and if mm -hmm. you end up with what we call a stock connect, you could also buy them in Shanghai. Mm -hmm. so that's a free market mechanism that is uh, in place in Vietnam and in uh, in China. There are some restrictions sometimes foreign ownership in, in certain industries. That's what it is. Mm -hmm. But the uh, the way I would describe it is that the, the the role of the government in 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 particular in China, of course, is very different than uh, where you guys are from, in the US. Right. Uh, the role of the government is uh, much more. Um, persuasive. It is. It is a <laughs> one way to put it. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it sets up regulations. And for a long time, the name of the game in uh, investing in China was: you don't want to invest in the, the state-owned enterprises. Go for the vibrant private sector companies because that's yeah, they, they operate in a freely operating environment. Uh, it's competitive. They need to think about their brands. Uh, they can benefit from some of these demographic trends that we spoke about earlier on. Mm -hmm. Recently, what we've seen is that the government is also yeah, uh, quite big in intervening and in, 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 in setting up regulations for those industries. China Internet, for example, was a big thing last year, 2021, in that uh, in that regard. Mm -hmm. um, and, and people have said, can, can I invest in that market? And you can invest in the Chinese market, but uh, there's, there's a couple of ways that that market will be operating much differently than other stock markets uh, around the world uh, for the reasons that I just uh, that I just mentioned that right uh, yeah it operates in a very different system in that sense and uh, yeah that's just you got to know that and, and, <laughs> and, and price that in and and be aware of that and um, and and, uh, and invest accordingly now do you think that we're we're going to continue to see good news on the Chinese companies that are have US listings? I mean, because we recently were seeing some stories about China softening up and saying like, yeah, we can go in, we can have some American regulars come in with our auditors and we can keep these Chinese companies listed. Do you, from, from your experience in China, uh, is, is this, is this the, the start of the, that wave of, of like, we're, we're going to accept that or, or be, am I right to still be skeptical that, you know, in thinking things like Alibaba and Diddy, won't be on the U.S. stock exchange in 10 years. I, I would be in that particular camp. I think you're going to see an increased segregation in that sense. Uh, different that these Chinese companies are um, take their listings away from the U.S. and um, and, and going to go pretty much more, most of them go back to, to Hong Kong, hmm. but at least somewhere else. But let's say Hong Kong. So we've seen quite a few companies coming over to Hong Kong. I'm surprised that over the last 
12 months, I think 21 Chinese companies have listed in the US. And so clearly these companies believe that this is not going to be an issue. They can be listing there and that uh, maybe meeting the new disclosure standards are going to be quite stringent, but or that they can meet that in, in the US. But um, no, I think increasingly a lot of these Chinese companies will not list and or delist from the US and put their listing into Hong Kong. And we've already seen this taking place and it will transform the Hong Kong market here into some sort of Chinese or Asian NASDAQ of the East, if you want to put it like that. Is that kind of the goal then maybe? Try to, to, to maybe focus on developing their own stock market over um, the U.S.'s? To a certain extent, I think this is just a, a, a natural consequence of the kind of growing rivalry between the U.S. and, uh, and China. And um, and that started a couple of years ago, uh, to intensify at least. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they are developing their own stock market. So you have, of course, Shanghai is big. You got in China also Shenzhen as a stock market, really tech geared. They've recently opened up a new one in, in Beijing that's still quite small, but that could help uh, companies that are maybe more in the northern part of uh, China located there uh, to, to source money. And of course, then you have uh, the Hong Kong market, which is outside of the Chinese uh, capital system, how you say that, uh, outside of the capital controls of capital accounts. But it's, um, yeah, that's where international money can, can buy the, uh, the Chinese name. So you get different stock markets in China with different dynamics as well. So other than ETFs, is there, because like I know, I know I can actually buy shares in the NASDAQ exchange itself. Hmm. Does the Hong Kong exchange itself have shares? Yeah. So you could uh, you can buy the uh, you you can buy that exchange that is a listed company that is correct. Hmm. And one of the things, of course, why some of these Chinese companies listed in the U.S. in the past is that a lot of Americans just simply have a preference to trade in their own time in uh, in New York or in the U.S. Yes. And that makes a lot of good sense. Uh, but if they could go to Hong Kong, you could still buy it. Uh, there's, there's not a problem you can just buy in, on Hong Kong Stock Exchange. Um, you tell your broker to do that, and there you go. So that's that's all very easy, even if they would be listed in Hong Kong. But yeah, it's physically a little bit further away from people. People have a home bias when it comes to markets, uh, also the time zones that they look at. Mm. So not all of that trading, like, uh, trading that takes place in these Chinese names at the moment in New York will probably go to uh, Hong Kong, but uh, a decent part of it, maybe a third of Half of it will will go uh, and move. I I I'm trying to remember this correctly, and, and it, I might be referring to India, but uh, China was it w- in in China with the A list and the H list, where you mm. could have the same company going up and down depending on the exchange at the same time. Yeah, that is that is China. So you have, um, as I mentioned, you got a couple of exchanges, but let's just focus on the two big ones, which are Hong Kong and and Shanghai. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can have a company that lists in both stock exchanges. So the profits are the same for the company, right? I mean, for the profits for the stocks are the same, the dividends are the same. The thing, though, is that the liquidity that goes around in China is different than the liquidity that goes around in Hong Kong. Hong Kong is really sensitive to global flows. It is The Hong Kong dollar is uh, basically is called a currency board, but it, it's, it's got an almost uh, fixed rate of exchange to the U.S. dollar. So it, it tracks U.S. dollar rates uh, quite closely. Mm. So if if the U.S. would raise interest rates and Hong Kong would raise interest rates and liquidity would be drained out of Hong Kong, but in China you would have the opposite, that liquidity is being added there, it could well be that the Chinese stock, the A share, uh, as we call it, goes up for that company, while in Hong Kong it goes down. So you can have the same company, but you can have different movements. That's such a great <laughs> example of supply and demand. 
yeah, uh-huh. this is uh-huh. this is uh, yeah, this is this is uh, a very popular trading strategy that people can trade in, uh, in in Shanghai and in Hong Kong and look at the differences and say, well, th- it doesn't make sense. The same companies in Shanghai has gone on over, uh, up over the last two days and in Hong Kong it's down. And uh, what I should do is now try to reverse that. Mm-hmm. And um, so the market acts as a kind of an arbitrage uh, tool. But yeah, this, uh, this, this happens. This is a very unique situation in, um, in, in, uh, in Asia, in, in particular in Chinese stocks. Well, uh, I want to ask a quick question about China too. My wife had uh, mentioned something the other day. I'm curious if this was true or if there's more nuance to it. Uh, about the rule being in place in China that stocks can't rise more than 10% on a day. No, a lot of stock markets around the world have a kind of triggers. If, if something really seriously happens, mm-hmm. the market falls by 5%, uh, you get cool off periods. That's like the stock break, uh, the circuit breaker trips in, in the US markets? Yeah, the US has, has that as well. But I think in, in, in Asia, sometimes the circuit breakers, are, every market, I don't know at the top of my head, but they have different kind of circuit breakers and also different ways of dealing with it. Mm-hmm. I think in, in and in China it might well be that it's about ten percent or so that could well be the case, and uh, and then normally what you get is that uh, trading is halted for half an hour, and if it then breaks the circuit again, then trading is halted for maybe an hour or two hours just to um, yeah cool down heads, right? But it's not a shutdown for the day then. It's not necessarily a shutdown for the day, but mm, okay. It, it could well be that, um, I don't know the top of my head, but there have been situations whereby a stock was shut down for the day, but then was allowed to trade thereafter again. But maybe that's after, say, three or four triggers have been uh, mm, right. or have been triggered, I guess. Circuits uh, have, have been broken, and that then, uh, then you can't trade for that particular day or so. There you go, Laura. That one's for you. It's <laughs> <laughs> for your wife, Laura, yes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But that's uh, that's a normal thing that most markets, stock markets, have. That's nothing uh, extraordinary in uh, in Asia or so. Yeah, it sounded kind of weird the way she was reading it or trying to ask it. But then the more I thought about it, yeah, it sounded more like just like the normal circuit breaker protections that we have in place here in the U.S. Yeah, just to make sure that uh, cool heads and also there's a lot of um, algorithmic trading and computer trading so that, um, it, that that these things don't reinforce themselves. So you need a circuit breaker just to to break that particular chain and uh, reset. Get rid of that. That resonance or feedback. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if people can plug and say, let's start with zero again. Uh, does this make sense? Or do, uh, we're doing and um, so that's important. But for the rest, uh, it's not that more than 10% change as our stock. No, indeed. So some of these internet stocks have fallen 70 or 80% over the last year, at least. And yeah. It's a really violent um, trading even two weeks ago, three weeks ago. And uh, But the market just uh, kept open and, um, and, and uh, it was allowed to go on. So that's nothing. Uh, that's nothing different in, uh, in 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 Asia in that sense. Right. Go ahead, Dan. Sorry, didn't mean to jump in there. Steal it from you. You had some good momentum going there. <laughs> that, but, but he answered my question. Yes. Oh. Well. Uh, well <laughs> one thing maybe to ex- expand on. And uh, we're talking on China anyway. Is uh, you said, listen, it's a communist country. That's right. The government, therefore, is is, is playing a more active role in, uh, in in allocating capital than, for example, in the US is. Uh, that is also correct. That has an impact on how some of these sectors move. We've seen this with China Internet of last year, but also um, it could also mean that they want a, an allocation of capital to those sectors that they think are really important to them. Um, uh, China is still very dependent on high-end technology, on food and energy from the rest of the world. It aims to try to develop these sectors itself. Now, that's easier uh, said than done. And mm-hmm. it, 
uh, and so far the, the results of that have been mixed. Certain industries okay, and other industries still difficult. Um, but it means that that's where that's where China would like to see the growth, and they're putting regulations in place for those industries to flourish. Now, that's where you then can say, oh, maybe that's in China, that's where I need to invest in. So that's renewables, that is semiconductor equipment, that's um, um, food industries and these sort of things. Now, that doesn't mean you, you can buy any, any of the stocks that are listed in those sectors there. You've got to be a little bit specific in terms of picking them and say, hey, mm-hmm. industries, things are really concentrated, not too much competition. So, for example, if you go after renewables, solar is a big industry, but certain parts of the solar industry are highly competitive, but solar glass is only made by two companies. So it's really concentrated and duopoly, as we call it. Uh. I think you can say, hey, that's an interesting part. That's that's that may how I would like to invest in China because that's a sector that uh, that I like that the government like wants to grow. The regulations will probably be good, and there are two or three or maybe four companies that are really going to benefit from it. And other companies might struggle to get in here in there for a variety of reasons. So that's where you're um, focus your attention on. So you can play demographics teams, but that's another way of uh, looking at stock uh, ideas in uh, in China. I think another thing that like, like we kind of touched on a little bit at the beginning too is folk, like you need to find too what the country does well. Yeah, in that sense, that is uh, that is right, and uh, uh, different countries do different things uh, differently. I mean, um, Korea high end tech and brands is, is really good. Mm-hmm. For China, this is the challenge. What what is it that China is really good in? And uh, they're developing they're developing a new kind of growth model in which high end technology plays a, a major role. One of the challenges that they will have is how can that in in a, in a, in, a, in an environment where the government controls many things, how can you develop those industries that yeah also need a little bit of creativity and or um, uh, an open field to, to play around with. But anyway, that's a challenge that China needs to figure out. But then you can say, yeah, this is what they want to focus on. They look at them themselves strategically and say, we are weak in certain areas and we don't want that. We Therefore, we need to grow those industries and provide them with support. Now, semiconductor equipment, food, energy, renewables is exactly what they uh, that, that they want to go for. And that's where you can invest in the longer run in China. Mm-hmm. Still, then you have to be very specific. It's like the gold rush, right? You don't want to right. you want to be a gold digger. You wanted to be a um, you wanted to want to be the guy who sold the shovels. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> yes. I've used that exact metaphor many times on this show. <laughs> but exactly, that's um, that's the one to go for. Uh, so you have to be a little bit clever how you do that. And this comes back to what I said at the very beginning. China, but uh, large parts of Asia are more almost diverse. There's a bigger spread in stock movements. In, in China than there is in, in the US mm-hmm. um, for all these reasons. And therefore, sometimes you have to be a little bit more specific in terms of how you invest in these markets. Um, Dan, do you have anything else to ask about India? Because I want to make sure we get some of those in. Oh, yeah. Just first of all, I got to say, nothing would intimidate me more than trying to invest in India after reading the part of your book mm. about uh, the, <laughs> the Indian markets. <laughs> <laughs> I, I almost feel like I just want to be like, why don't you give everybody a big, big welcome and walk into the, the differences? But uh, uh, are there any other countries in Asia that have as great uh, a language diversity as India? Let's, put, let's start with that question. Yeah, India is incredibly diverse. And I mean, um, and, and therefore, it's it's almost like a United Nations of India, if you want to put it like that. You all these different states with different regulations, different languages, different cultures. And, and India is a very difficult country to, to penetrate as a company. If you want to go there and build up a business, it's not easy hmm. because of all these differences. And in addition to that, there's all kinds of regulations you need to deal with, but also physical 
infrastructure sometimes is an issue. So getting your products from A to B in India is not always easy. But you said, well, uh, why would I have invest in India? India has actually been the best performing market in Asia over the last 20 years. It has done twice as good as the S&P 500 over that period, almost twice wow, as good. Wow, really? So it has done very well. And, and this is, I think, the secret of India in the sense that it's got two sorts of companies. It's got companies that are domestically extremely strong because if you and I say, listen, we want to sell, I don't know, toothpaste in India, and we try to set up a business, distributing that across India, it will take us decades to sort that out, literally decades. <laughs> it is not easy because you're going to go to all these millions of small villages and try to get the space there. Mm -hmm. But there are companies who figure this out. They started in the 1850s or something, the 1880s, and they, they figured it out. They've done that. And they've become mm -hmm. some of the most profitable companies in Asia. Some of the Indian companies are the most profitable in Asia. And uh, because they figured out how to deal with this and distribute, they have the channels to distribute in this massive place. And that makes them highly profitable. And that's one set of companies that have done very well in India. And then you have a second set of companies that have emerged as, as I said earlier, global leaders, industries that have emerged in Asia and have become globally competitive in India, that is IT and software, and it is uh, pharma. And these industries have come out of nowhere, started with basically making very simple powders and pills and stuff like that, copying mm -hmm. when they came in, in the US, for example, of patent and said, oh, no, everybody can make it. We're going to make it really cheap. Done that, then tried to sell them around the world. And they become better and better in that. And now they're making more advanced products and moving up and doing R&D and these sort of things as well. So these industries, pharma, IT, have become globally competitive and they've done very well. And then you have a domestic kind of companies that have strong brands and enormously strong uh, distribution channels that, uh, to be honest, just we, we can't compete with. And therefore, they've become incredibly powerful and profitable. And, uh, and those, those companies have really led the way in India. So this is, if I would put money away for the longer run in, in, in Asia, India would be one market for a very simple reason that it has all those companies and has done so well. Did India recently uh, send a rover to Mars too for like a, I think it was like a $3 million budget. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what the budget was. So $3 million doesn't sound a hell of a lot to sell a rover. Really cheap. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah. But um, yes, all these countries have uh, technological aspirations, of course, and uh, put it in, uh, in space. Um, China is quite active in that. India just recently started on that. But uh, I'm not quite sure if that, uh, yeah, well, maybe there's some military purpose for that or so. Uh, where I think India should invest much more in is education. Education in India at the lower end, some of it is high, no top notch. I mean, some of the universities are really good, global standards, but also you have a lot of states where primary schools and secondary schools are just not, not really good. And um, right. there's all kinds of scores. So a lot of people don't get the education to really, yeah, be employed in, in factories and, uh, and stuff like that. So um, one would hope that actually that's where they put their investments in. I would ask, which Asian country do you think puts the heaviest focus on education? Because that would be one of the things that I would want to look for yeah. if I'm like, trying to pick an emerging market. Yeah, I mean, actually, one country that is surprisingly good is Vietnam. Really? I don't know if you ever heard of the PISAS course, which is kind of a um, 15, 16-year-old high school score that they do around the world. Mm -hmm. It's done by the OECD. And uh, they do standardized scores around the world. And then they look at how people do uh, in, in different countries on similar kind of tests. Mm -hmm. 
And I think the U.S. ranked something like 23 or something like that. And Vietnam is number 24. Wow. So your 15, 16-year-old Vietnamese is doing as good as your average 15, 16-year-old in the U.S. Hmm. So education has always played a big role in China, uh, but it's also playing a big role in Vietnam. And, uh, and I, I think we've seen the fruits of this. In, the, in Vietnam, you see people, uh, uh, new factories are being established there. They've set up industrial parks. Samsung and the Korean tech companies are making their uh, smartphones are being uh, assembled there now. Bangladesh is another country that is invested into that. Uh, you see that some of the production is moving there. So they benefit from that because eventually you see that yeah, companies are setting up businesses in, 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 in Vietnam or in Bangladesh. And uh, with all the other benefits that come with it, people get a job, they get more money to spend, consume differently they start to travel and all these sort of things happen so i think if i would pick a country that really stands out vietnam is actually um, is really good and uh, i think bangladesh is another one that, um, that, that that is also proving to be pretty good wow i would not have picked bangladesh <laughs> no no most people wouldn't know but uh, yeah bangladesh is one of these countries a few people look at but it's it's large open it's got uh, about close to 200 million people bangladesh will be by the end of this decade this is a study from the brookings institute will be the sixth largest consumer market on the planet by the end of this decade wow. uh, it's now number 15 or 20 or something like that it is it will be bigger than uh, than the UK and Germany. And it's, um, it's a consumer market that very few people look at. It's a stock market that very few people look at. But this could be something that people should be looking at uh, over the next 10 years. Yeah. So wow. it'll be one of the more exciting stories, including with Vietnam, new stock markets that are emerging in this part of the world. Okay, so I need to find a Bangladesh index and a Vietnam index, right? Yeah, I don't think there's a Bangladesh <laughs> ETF yet, but somebody will set it up. But there are people who um, have funds, uh, Bangladeshi funds, so frontier market funds that, uh, that go there. And some of your, I believe, some of your U.S. fund providers, um, your Fidelities and your BlackRocks and stuff, they... Uh, they have something there, so you, you can invest. But very often it's quite small. But yeah, if you want to put money away and say which countries could do quite well, uh, Vietnam could do well, Bangladesh could do uh, also pretty good. So um, yeah, but, uh, I would look at those markets, definitely. I think, yeah, tomorrow when market opens, I'll be buying a Bengal tiger. <laughs> something like that, exactly. <laughs> Hopefully. Yeah, right. I mean, India, that stock market, and uh, since 2000, it's up almost, what is it, 10 times. Nice. So imagine you would have done that. And in 2000, a lot of people didn't look at India and Asian stock markets were still a bit of a novelty. Is there concern that uh, they're about to have a Japan moment? Uh, Bangladesh? No, uh, India. With the returns that they've seen, is that return sustainable or is that something that... Parts of India are expensive. Some of these consumer companies we mentioned are, are expensive. They trade at high multiples, but have fairly consistently done so. Mm-hmm. India's got a lot of challenges, but not the challenges that Japan had. In Japan, it was runaway debt and runaway stock markets and these sort of things. In, in, in India, it, the challenges, I think, lie more in uh, getting proper education, uh, unifying all kinds of regulations. They've unified tax codes, uh, for example, uh, or some of it uh, in, in, in the past few years. Uh, it's these sort of challenges that are important. It's very reliant on oil. Uh, mm-hmm. from the rest of the world. So it's, uh, it's, it's these sort of challenges that are important for the, uh, for the stock market. How, how hurt is India being by the Ukraine war and the sanctions against Russia with all the oil they import? Yeah, they're a big oil importer. And this is a big thing for them. And this is a problem. This will slow down the economy and means that inflation is going to come through, which is in the rest of the world, of course, as well. But in India, this will be fairly, uh, fairly prominent. So this is uh, something and we, what we've seen over the last couple of months. We've seen people taking money out, foreign funds at least, taking money out of the Indian stock market 
and uh, reallocating it somewhere else, uh, going to uh, some of the more uh, resource-heavy markets, Indonesia, South Africa, and these uh, sort of uh, maybe the Gulf. And uh, yeah, that, that will be difficult for India. What has actually held up that Indian stock market is exactly what we spoke about in the beginning. You've seen um, lots of domestic retail investors coming in and buying the market up. So um, uh, that, that, that has supported the Indian stock market. But foreign funds have used it as a funding market over the, over the last say, uh, five months or so. And one of them is because they had a lot of exposure there. But secondly, uh, yeah, oil is, is a risk to the underlying kind of growth momentum that some of these companies are going to see this year. Uh, Harold, are you familiar with what happened over in Iceland as far as the uh, the banking collapse? Uh, not completely, but uh, I, I followed I followed it as a story what was in 2008 and right? And uh, mm-hmm. some of these banks collapsed uh, in, in Iceland. Uh, we, we talked to Jared Bibler, who was one of the actual investigators over there. And mm-hmm. one of the things that really surprised us was hearing about the bank being the major purchasers of their own shares on their stock market exchange mm-hmm. and doing that for decades. Mm-hmm. Is there any concern about stuff like that happening on these smaller exchanges where it seems like maybe those kinds of tactics can, you can get away with much easier? No, I mean, uh, share buybacks has been a big issue in the US, but... Well, these aren't buybacks. These yeah. are actual <laughs> hiding these purchases and basically uh, being the only trading volume of the company yeah. stock over yeah. the course of a decade. <laughs> no, that, I mean, uh, to a certain extent, yeah, certain markets are a little bit, may, a bit less liquid. Some of that might take place and we can't always see this, but I don't think it's a, a, a big concern. What you do have in India, the, the, the majority shareholder is very often called the promoter mm-hmm. and obviously out there promoting their stock, but that I don't think is as big as an as an as an issue uh, as it is in uh, some of the other markets. Uh, and then I had one last question. We'll wrap up with something fun. Uh, please, please tell me more about the shit stamp when you were backpacking in uh, Malaysia. Yeah, so I arrived <laughs> in Asia in 1990 as a backpacker. I studied economics in in the Netherlands, but as a student, I went backpacking and I loved it. So I went to China, I went to Indonesia. But at one point in time, I went from Indonesia to um, to Malaysia. Mm-hmm. And when you arrived in Malaysia in those days, if you looked a little bit like a hippie, they didn't they didn't like that. <laughs> <laughs> I had a backpack and I had a sarung attached to it. And of course, um, uh, yeah, uh, you, you've been traveling in, in buses or you've been dirty to dirty T-shirts and stuff like that. So you get into your passport a stamp that says suspected hippie in transit, S-H-I-P. <laughs> <laughs> I remember you could... Uh, you were allowed to stay in the country for, I think it was three or four days. So I literally took a train straight into Thailand. You're in, but you had to go out. Uh, <laughs> that, doesn't, uh, that doesn't exist, those stamps, anymore. Okay. It was, uh, it was stamped in your passport, like uh, uh, you are S-H-I-T. That sounds like a collector's item these days. I bet you if you if you ever got that stamp, you should hold on to it because that's probably a keepsake. I have it, but I think I think that passport is with my parents because there was a passport I had in the 1990s, a long time ago, right? So uh, I think it's somewhere <laughs> still on the in, in on the attic with my parents or something like that. Dig it up again. I would have that framed. Well, it was a kind of a, yeah, it was something that people wanted to have in those days. It was kind of funny to have. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Harold, thank you so much for taking the time to come talk to us. And thank you for sending us a copy of your book to check out Asian uh, stock markets from the ground up. Yeah. Oh, so good. Where can people find the book and where can people find more about you? 
you can go on Amazon, you can find a book, you can download it on Kindle. Uh, it should be in bookstores in uh, somewhere in the US, I guess, but also in the UK, I know it is, and, and uh, uh, here in Hong Kong and Singapore, it's of course in bookstores in Japan. It will, it will be translated into Thai and Mandarin for those who uh, want to practice that and brush up on their Thai or Mandarin. <laughs> Probably not listening to us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, but it's um, the easiest way, of course. Uh, go mm. to Amazon and uh, you can find the book there. Are you on any of the social media channels? Yeah, um, LinkedIn. So um, uh, we are active on LinkedIn. If people want to stay in tune with what happens in Asian stock markets, they can follow me on LinkedIn. And uh, we post, and we are, I'm talking about HSBC uh, as well, uh, post stuff there in order for people just to stay abreast of what happens in these markets on a, on a kind of a regular basis. So um, that's where you can find us. We'll put links to all that in the episode description so make it easier for people to find. Fantastic. So make sure you check that out if you want to learn more. Excellent. Thank you very much, gentlemen, for having me on your show. Oh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, oh, yes. Thank you. Yes. Very, very informative. I hope so. And uh, if you want to know more, then I'd say get the book and read it. It's quite an easy read, right? It's not easy. It's as easy to get through. I was very impressed with the book. Uh, I was expecting more of a dry textbook style, but it was it had a lot more life and feel to it. Uh, yeah. Like just the personal details of your experiences in the different markets and the way your writing style, I thought, came across really well. Yes. Yeah. Thank you very much for that. But I spent a lot of time on that to um, yeah to chisel it a little bit to just to make very accessible because I didn't want it to be a uh, dry textbook uh, kind of thing. Well, I think you accomplished that goal. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you very much for that. That was a big objective for me. All right, Dan, you want to take us home? All right, folks. We uh, want to thank you for sticking around to the end. Hope that you've got a little bit better of a grasp on the Asian markets now. Uh, obviously, you need to run out and get that book if you want the full grasp. Uh, very amazing stuff. Like Kyle said, it's easy to read. It's accessible. Uh, I read the intro and immediately was like, why isn't there a movie about the Dutch stock market <laughs> forming in the 1600s, 1700s? It's a great story, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah so good. Uh, <laughs> but unfortunately, we have reached the end of the episode, so we got to kick you all out of the shop. But don't worry, we'll be back at you soon with more great stuff, more great content coming up. Thank you again, Harold. Thank you, thank you. This has been so great. Thank you for having me on your show. Until next time, everybody, happy trades. Bye. Bye-bye. Bulls in a China Shop is an entertainment program, and all thoughts and opinions expressed in the show belong to the hosts and not of any company. They are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security or investment product. It is only intended to provide entertainment about stocks in the financial industry of trading. If you make trades based on what you hear in this show, you assume all risks for those trades.